Welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Vasca, super nerd, polyglot, former teacher, and this is our first ever bonus episode where we discuss our favorite works for the sheer joy and love of the work. I'm so happy that our first bonus episode is on the topic of my favorite guy, Stephen Sondheim. Today, we're talking about Sondheim's A Little Night Music, uh, together with our friends, Megan Pfeiffer Miller and Daniel Miller. Hello, guys. Hi. Hello, my name is Dan Miller, and I am just a music geek, not a professional. Uh, and I have been singing in choirs pretty much since college. And over the years, um, have become a huge fan of Stephen Sondheim's. But unlike other people on this podcast, wasn't necessarily raised on it, as in spoon-fed it from a very young age. So that's my background. Um, we live in Colorado. Um, oh, yeah, and we had a three-year stint in Germany with the Army. Hi, and I'm Megan. I am a musician of many hats. I sing whenever I can professionally. I conduct choirs. Um, I sing in choirs. I teach a lot of voice students and um, act in shows and plays and musicals and things when I am able. So all those good things. And I chase two small children. Um, in terms of this podcast, I deliberately started it so that I could talk about all things pop cultural that I care about. And Sondheim, as Dan, Dan started to allude, uh, is one of those things that I kind of grew up on. Uh, from age five, I was pretty much obsessed with Sondheim and uh, would listen to very little else if I could help it. Um, and I wanted to also uh, bring up the fact that Megan and I actually met on a production of A Little Night Music. Um, I had a part in the chorus, and she was playing the cello in the pit. Yes. And uh, I, I I, did want to kind of get to hear your perspectives. My, my experience with Sondheim started at age five, getting an Into the Woods CD, but... Uh, <laughs> Great way to start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But what about you guys? Well, it's funny you say that. I remember Into the Woods was the first musical theater CD that I bought. And I bought it when I was probably 12 or 13. And I remember the week I bought it, I was babysitting a four-year-old. So I re I'm responsible for introducing another small child to Sondheim. Um, as for me, I, I remember I saw the touring company of Into the Woods when I was eight, I believe, um, and was blown away, was just totally amazed and loved it. Um, I don't think I saw any more until I was in middle school when my mother, who's also a cellist, played the pit orchestra for a little night music. And I got to go to the, um, the little local professional theater company production of a little night music. Um, a lot of it, I think, went, uh, some of it went at least a little bit over my head. You know, I was old enough to get some of the adult themes and not be, but, you know, it's, the Sondheim text and everything, it's dense when you're getting used to that as a as a young person. And there's a lot of innuendo and things in this that I don't think I picked up on. But I, I definitely enjoyed it and was very proud of my mom for doing a great job. Um, you know, after that, it's been bit by bit more. Um, the, this production in, in college and 
you know, music library, look up as much Sondheim as you can possibly find. Um, the last uh, musical, that full musical production that I did um, before our kids were born was Company. We had to fight hard against the cast to not name our son Robert, Bobby <laughs> Baby. Bobby, Bobby He was baby, Bobby, known Bobby. by the whole cast as Bobby Baby. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I cannot recall the first time um, I was supposed to Hana, but I know it wasn't until college. Um, and I think it may have been through you. I don't know if I actually went to a little night music. I don't think I did. Yes, I you did. Right. You gave me a bottle of scotch. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot of things from college I barely remember, and the bottle of scotch probably has something to do with that. Um, so, uh, love that. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that it was you, uh, Errol, who exposed me to um, Sweeney Todd. And oh, then... Okay. Um, and then when Meg and I started going together, she would make me uh, CDs um, when I was deployed with the army. And, and there was uh, uh, selections from Sunday in the park with George. Um, and then uh, little night music listened to, uh, but I didn't see another show until company. And I absolutely adored it. Loved everything about it, the, the music, uh, the story. And then, um, and I guess right after that is, is I started to, to come back and look at it a little night music again. And, um, so, you know, Monday, Wednesdays, Fridays, um, company's my favorite Sondheim and then Tuesdays, Thursdays and Sundays, it's a little night music. So, um, I can never make my, my mind up. It's, uh, really important that I state that, uh, Stephen Sondheim, um, cool. recently had his 90th birthday, um, yeah. As one of the greats of the musical theater, um, and I, I really do consider his lyrics to be right up there with uh, mm. almost a Shakespearean level of uh, embodiment of character and setting as well as cadence and tone. Um, we're going to talk a lot about uh, both the lyrics as well as the music in a moment, um, but before I do that, I want to um, talk a little bit about the influences for a little night music in particular. Um, Stephen Sondheim is generally known as a huge film nerd, which, yeah. of course, is part of why, of course, I fell in love with him, too, uh, since I am also a huge film nerd. And uh, his particular story of a little night music when we talk about on this podcast, looking at things that are interconnected and have ramifications across time and space, because nothing exists in a vacuum, the story of this show takes you from Ingmar Bergman in Sweden to Elizabeth Taylor to The Simpsons. And I think it's, it's you know, it's important yeah. to talk about. So... With that in mind, we're going to be specifically discussing the original Broadway cast album as a piece of media, but we are going to be tying in uh, information about all of the different works that uh, tie into this particular wonderful play. Um, so a little bit of background. Uh, Stephen Sondheim has this wonderful collected volume of his lyrics called Finishing the Hat. Mm -hmm. um, volume two is Look, I Made a Hat. 
This particular play, A Little Night Music, is based on Ingmar Bergman's 1955 Smiles of a Summer Night. Uh, Ingmar Bergman, in case you don't know, is the Swedish director of films like Seventh Seal and Fanny and Alexander. And in Smiles of a Summer Night, he was making a sex farce, essentially, uh, which is not necessarily what one thinks of when one thinks of him. Um, this happens to be one of my favorite films by him. He's obviously a favorite director of mine. I know you guys recently rewatched the film. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, yeah, because nerds. <laughs> yeah. Again, yeah. the library of Bergman yeah. on the shelf. Go pull it down. And then, of course, it's funny because you go, oh, there's, you know, there's Gunnar Bjornstrand, and he was also in Wild Strawberries, and yeah, like 10 other Bergman films. It's uh, much like Orson Welles. He he kind of have has his Mercury Theater uh, mm -hmm. and recycles. So you get to see these wonderful actors in such incredibly different roles from, from movie to movie. And this is just really one of the superb uh, performances uh, for, for so many of that cast. Uh, still fairly early in the cycle where he's been making movies since since the mid 40s. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's at this point, uh, as he talks about, um, very, very poor. Um, it's kind of incredible that the whole thing even got put together. But you never know because the cast, uh, the casting, the costuming, everything is so absolutely lush. It looks like something that was just bankrolled by the highest level. Um, and every bit of love, I think, that the man could put into a film, he put into this movie. And it seems even more so that it's it's an original screenplay. Mm -hmm. like, everything about it seems like, where did he adapt this from? It, it's, there is something, there is so much of Mozart opera there in is. it. There is, you can, she, you can see Shakespeare in it. Um, you yeah, can see Shakespeare Greek and Beaumarchais, mm -hmm. sort of hand in hand there. Um, well, it's that mastery of, you know, as you mentioned with Sondheim, the Shakespearean qualities, it's the the mastering the comedy as well as the tragedy and having that perfect balance. If something is just pure comedy, you know, it's a fluff piece. We, we lose all interest, but there's such depth to it. And the humor comes out of the real, the deep human emotions and the struggle and the ridiculousness of life and love and how, who finds mm -hmm. who and who thinks they're supposed to be with who and with whom. And yeah, it's just, it's madness. In the story of Sondheim, he basically uh, starts looking at this film um, after the success of Hal Prince. Uh, Stephen Sondheim was working together with the producer Hal Prince um, on a number of musicals. And Hal had just had a lot of success turning uh, from the producer role to the director producer role on the film or on the play She Loves Me. And so he and Sondheim decided to do a romantic musical together. And uh, Sondheim looked at a couple of different movies in particular. Uh, of course, their ones film buffs would know, Rules of the Game and Smiles of a Summer Night. Um, Bergman would let him use it, but he wouldn't let him use the title. Uh, and... Sondheim was really excited because he felt that he could use his favorite musical form, which has always been theme and variations. He specifically cites Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini as a favorite, which he can't help hearing himself within this score. Um, 
And I confess, like, I went back and I listened to that before I re-listened to the musical, and I still don't actually hear it, but... um, (laughs) Maybe in some of the tonality, but it's so different when you get away from from the piano. The Night Waltz and all of its variations that, that runs through the entire production is, I mean, it's a total earworm. It gets in, it takes over... Um, it can drive you mad. And Rhapsody in a Theme of Paganini by Rachmaninoff. Um, uh, for those who aren't familiar, then this this is the theme from um, the, the movie Somewhere in Time. And, and for a year, people were all oh, humming to um, Christopher the Christopher Reeve, Reeve and, and, and all of that scene. So it is very... It's one of those things um, that, that gets in there. But I, I'm with you. I mean, I don't, I don't hear the tonality of that. But, but the mood setting. But the I mood mean, setting the, makes the whole sense. idea is that we're trying to depict this, this, this eerie setting, Sweden in in the peak of summer, where mm-hmm. it never gets dark. You have this perpetual twilight, this unsettled, this beauty, this extreme beauty and joy and life and everything coming back to. But at the same time, this, this, it's like a perpetual nocturne. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and for someone who's ever, you know, I love this because <laughs> there's um, uh, Madame Arnfeld has the line to Frederica, never marry a Scandinavian. They're all insane. It has something to do with, with the latitude, I believe the line is. And anyone who's ever been to Scandinavia or even, even been to, to the UK at the height of summer and this, <laughs> yeah, this perpetual twilight that goes on. It's euphoric. It is a little maddening. It makes you kind of nuts. And they really capture that essence well throughout this movie and this musical. Yeah. Just like in the movie, everything plays out over the course of one weekend in the summer. So you have one fixed location, one fixed time period. Um, As actress Desiree Armfelt tries to rekindle her old affair with the lawyer Frederick Agerman, complications ensue, including (laughs) with his wife and her lover. Um, And what I find interesting is that Hal Prince and Sondheim uh, were very into the idea, and they brought on Hugh Wheeler, who would also write the book for Sweeney Todd. Um, And... uh, Hugh wrote up the book and Sondheim almost rejected it immediately. Um, But he was told it was a chance for him to just show off musically. Um, And Sondheim has actually since come around and said that this particular book is one of his favorites of all time for a musical, Um, Mm. just because it is so lovely and light and dark at the same time. Um, and Hal Prince described the show, actually, to get back to what you were saying about Fluffy, as whipped cream with knives. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love that quote. That is little death. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, um, Sondheim decides to make it a score of waltz variations, and so he decided to use triple meter scheme throughout, except for 11 measures in the second act. And uh, Megan will remember that. (laughs) I do. (laughs) And it's also almost all flat keys, which for a cellist are not very friendly. We got used to waltzes and flat keys really fast. And we start out Mm. with this very unique Greek chorus, 
which I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But then everybody go, we go straight into this waltz. But the waltz is, it's a perfect depiction of the whole, it's the whole thing that we're, we're dancing around, we're whirling around, we're dizzy, we're confused, we're a little euphoric, mm -hmm. we keep trading partners, we're confused about, and it's just, it's a great, it's a great way to introduce and to, yeah, to really foreshadow what will happen. So it gives so much space for so many different styles. You think of a waltz as being just one kind of music, but he can do so much, portray so many different emotions with that same time signature. Yeah. And visually in the show, before we even, before the music even, even starts, and there's the, the trademark tree of Little Night Music, and it just looks like a tree until you look closer, and it is all made up of, uh, of couples in, in various uh, uh, coupling <laughs> positions that together, you know, form, form this beautiful tree. And it's like that in and of itself, it's, it's the dance, it's, it's the sexuality, it's the beauty, and it's something being more than it first seems. Mm -hmm. It just carries us through um the rest of the film and it, and of course and it's, it's it's lush and it's it's um turn of the century and uh, and bozar and all that uh and like it's it's all those little things that from the very beginning connect the work um at, at, at the visual level with the writing um and with the music what were um, your general thoughts about the choice to go from this overture into the trio of now, later, soon that we're going to see next that immediately jumps right into the introduction of three characters simultaneously. I mean, I think it's brilliant the way that you pair up this. It's, it's a love triangle. That's always one of the challenges. How do we jump into an ongoing story. These people are already in the midst of their lives and then we have to jump in and figure out as quickly as possible what's going on. So we're dealing with this love triangle, the father, the son, and the young wife who really, who should she really be with? Mm -hmm. um, but just this, there's one who's, one who's still trying to live in his past We've got one who's waiting for life to begin already. And we've got Anne who's, you know, well, I just don't know. I just don't know soon. I, I promise I'll get around to feeling up to it. But it's it, his writing is amazing. The way that he mm -hmm. pairs these melodies that each are totally amazing and independent. And then they just, they, they fall together in this really spectacular, beautiful way. And of course, as a cellist, I'm partial to it because, you know, yeah. it's the grand cello moment. You, yeah. you cannot do this production without a cellist. There's and you were particularly amazing. I have Thank to say. you. Hendrik, his character doesn't change a whole lot between the, the musical and the movie, but how it's portrayed and how much insight Sondheim is able to give us of that character um, when it comes to uh, um, later uh, his portion of the song is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Well, I feel like yeah, he presents a much more, a much more palatable, a much more kindly caring father in the musical than, than was originally in the movie. On the other hand, Madame Armfelt gets much, gets much, much darker. harsh edge yeah. 
darker in the musical, whereas in the original film, she was she was quite kind and got along well with her daughter. And there's a more unified uh, team we're going forward into this. Yeah. Well, and I, I wonder, I have occasionally wondered how much it's also re- his relationship with his mother. I mean, yeah. you know, it's portraying strained relationships with maternal units. Now, yeah. um, speaking of strained relationships with maternal units, this original um, trio of now, later, soon was originally going to be a song uh, from Frederica, the daughter of Desiree, who was going to be our narrator for the play. Uh, originally, Sondheim had written it to be entirely from her perspective, and it was changed uh, because it felt much more dramatically interesting to weave it through various different people's perspectives uh, throughout the first act. Um, And I think it works much better that way, having read through all of the lyrics and so forth. Um, But obviously in Now, you see this trio of restlessness where Frederick Egerman is in crisis about his wife. And what can he read to her that will finally put her in the mood to consummate their marriage? And you get these witty references from the Brontes to de Maupassant to Stendhal to Hans Christian Andersen. Sondheim himself states he thinks he was being too clever by half when he wrote this bit. Um, But gosh, it makes some of us so happy. (laughs) I mean, it really makes me happy. I have to say, as a book nerd, I love it. I love it. (laughs) Well, hey, you know, it'll give people a chance to look those names up. Come on. But I think age eight, when I uh, was obsessing over this particular Sondheim musical, uh, I actually did look up all of those authors and I did, uh, you know, at least consume a a goodly chunk of things uh, from the red and the black to, you know, uh, Guy de Maupassant's short stories that I still have, but um, so it obviously has an effect on people. So you do you, Sondheim. You do you. <laughs> um, and then we get later where his son Henrik is angsting over a cello, being your typical moody teenager. And the quote from this that I think stuck with me when I was a teenager was it's intolerable being tolerated. <laughs> Believe it or not, like that, that was the line that just ran through my head. Um, but I, I wondered if you could uh, shed any light on the cello aspects at all, Megan. Um, I mean, with the voicing of the cello in that. Well, it's just, it's a lovely duet partner with Henrik and it, portrays I mean he's often he starts out in these short phrases he Henrik always gets interrupted and he tends to speak in these short we start later Henrik later the lawyer son what we start with these very short and so the the cello is giving us this deep flow of emotion that's underneath and this melancholy and this sadness and this just and then it builds and builds and builds and it gradually he vocally is able to express more of what's going on but still the cello in a lot of ways is the more expressive lyrical partner that mm-hmm. gives the emotion that's underneath these chopped off these angry and frustrated sentences and bitter and sad. And he's just, he's a pile of teenage emotions. 
as he should be, because we all are when we're that age. Very true. Henry reads a lot of Strindberg, I'm just going to say. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> much Strindberg is good for anyone. <laughs> but it's, yeah, you have to have, we have these two male voices that we have the that we have these more punctuated lines. And then we've got, we add Anne over the top with this floaty lyrical melody and the lovely beauty. I mean, it's a smart plan from a composer's perspective. It's a great way to work the piece together. Yeah. Uh, and the cello really, it fades out as we go through. The cello's there to give us, okay, the moment you hear that first, da, 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 okay, Henrik is dark and brooding. We got it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a fast way to portray that idea. I mean, there's no one who sits in their room playing that who's just a happy, cheerful, chipper person. And um, so then we get to soon, which is the third in the trio, which is Anne. Uh, we get Anne's monologue, who is Frederick's much younger wife, and her rambling apologies slash explanation about why they aren't physical. Um, and it starts with lines like, "If I weren't perfect for, if I were perfect for you, wouldn't you tire of me?" Uh, but then, of course, his lyrics reveal a bit of her repulsion as she starts to say things like "dear old," and then she just sort of breaks it off. Um, <laughs> And then she hears Henrik loudly playing his cello and, you know, she sort of seductively says to him, your father's sleeping later. And, you know, of course that um, makes it more clear that he's got this attraction to his stepmother, that he's, you know, kind of got as a separate conflict right here in the first five minutes of the show, we know a lot about everything that's going on. And so they're all singing together their individual parts separately. Um, And then Frederick takes a nap and the track ends with him singing Desiree in his sleep. (laughs) We throw the bomb into the love triangle. Indeed, (laughs) It's already a mess. And then that. (laughs) I can't think of any other song that goes through the, oh, well, I could do this or I could do, oh, wait, no, but that, oh, but, oh, oh, but I mean, the, I love the, the reasoning and the, the, oh, wait, no, the, the arguing with himself. Mm-hmm. We really see it. It's really fun and lively. And um, a lot of people I know who don't like Sondheim really reject the fact that he plays into the cadence of the actual rate of thought and speech musically. Um, whereas I think that is one of the things that makes me respond to him so strongly. Um, I mean, there are so many examples throughout his work where, uh, the fact that his conversations musically sound like actual conversations, uh, well, and I think that's why we see throughout so many of his works, we see a preference for, for singing actors, Mm-hmm. Um, that we, you know, it's like Glennis Johns is yeah. by no means the most glorious trained singer in the world. And yet her singing um, Send in the Clowns gave him his biggest hit probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because it's not a, it's not entirely about the music. The music is glorious, but the way he writes music is there are so many people you know coming from a perspective of someone who trains singers 
we try and create just this utter glorious beauty of the voice and this clear, spectacular tone and teach you how to maintain it from one word to the next and how to, but a huge amount of music's impact is letting the ugly, letting the human, letting those other colors and textures come in in the same way that as an actor, you train to, you train to show the bad stuff as much as the good stuff. And I think he wants his singers to do the same thing, <laughs> but so many singers don't. And um, I think he's brilliant at writing works that the music can show through and portray what he needs to portray, but also let the acting come through so clearly and cleanly. And part of that's what you were talking about with that text, the way that he allows the text to be more like speech. It tricks us into responding to the text in a different way. Instead of as lyrical of a fashion, we respond to it as actors, mm -hmm. which is great and fun and lively and cool. And, and it's also really remarkable with Sondheim because for being a person who is creating the music and the lyrics especially when you watch him with the actors in the studio listening to Elaine Stritch take an entire night uh, to record in company and then still having to come back in the morning. He, he knows when not to interfere. I mean, this is not a true Gesamtkunstwerk. He's not Wagner trying to make everything exactly his vision. He's letting it evolve as it comes through and how, how his actors are going to develop um these roles and and it really this is one of those productions that is um yes there is there is going to be a big difference between the original broadway and then revivals and all the rest just because that's the living thing that he that he creates um and that being said i mean there is no better lyricist in the world <laughs> but i love that he can pair up this very it's sometimes pattery it's sometimes just natural train of thought but he also, you know, we have this opening chorus that's somewhat operatic. You think of um, the Shakespearean dichotomy, you know, of the serious characters. And then we have our comic break here. Mm -hmm. Mozart loves playing that too. And, but just that we can put those things together. And it's really fascinating how they create a, a whole and they create better balance, I think, that way. And he's doing it in 1973 at the height of the rock opera and... I mean, just you think of how modern company was and that wonderful score, but it definitely sounds like 1969. It's always going to yeah. sound like 1969. Yeah. And then here comes this just late romantic waltz music and it's glorious and sumptuous and there's nothing like it on Broadway. Yeah. We always love talking about how just he creates a whole musical world for each show. There's a color, there's a sound, there's a, a way that each show works musically and it changes from one to the next. And you, I, no. you know, you wonder if he finds that sign, sound along the way as he's composing or if he has a, it's like you were talking about the, the um, Rachmaninoff, you know, okay, was that color in his brain as he sat down mm -hmm. to start writing? And that's what influenced the, yeah, with each work always there in all of his works, but boy, in this one, are they just, you know, especially the, <laughs> the night waltz and, and all his variations, but there is the unmistakable sound of that's little night music yeah. right there. Yeah. Um, so then we get the transition um, where Frederica, who is originally supposed to sing the first song is actually the one who starts off the next song, the glamorous life. Um, 
which is the first song featuring Glynis Johns, who is the Desiree uh, that was cited in that nap. And Glynis Johns, the casting of her is very interesting. Most people primarily know her today as the mom from Mary Poppins. (laughs) Um, But she's much more than that. Uh, When Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim were casting this part, they felt that they really needed someone who had the acting chops to play light comedy as well as the touches of darkness as required without bringing too much of a heaviness to it. And they kind of resigned themselves to the fact that they weren't going to find a great singer who could play it with all of the verve they really wanted for the acting and that the acting should take precedence over the singing. So for those of you who listened to the original Broadway cast recording in preparation to hear us talk about it, um, a lot of people react negatively to Glynis John's voice here. Uh, but really the most important thing is the character and the way that the character comes through in the lyrics and the music, um, both for Sondheim and I think for the vision of what he was trying to create here. Um, So we get the glamorous life, which is Desiree's expression of how hard it is to be an actress on the road. And simultaneously, we get her mother, Madame Armfelt's complaints Uh, So we get this sense of the conflict between her and her mother pretty much immediately and how her mother is corrupting the child, a.k.a. Frederica, her daughter. Um, And so this is the first time we hear the voice of Hermione Gingold as Madame Armfelt. And (laughs) that is another wonderful story. Um, The audition that Hermione Gingold had with Stephen Sondheim and Hal Prince was something that uh, they kind of gave as a courtesy. They never actually told her this, but they felt that since she was a grand dame of the stage from her work in things like Gigi, they felt that they sort of owed it to her to hear her out, even though they thought she was completely wrong for the role in absolutely every way. And uh, she came in and she gave a brief introduction and uh, saying something quite short and charming. And at the end, they were they were surprised by how how charming her vocal performance was. But apparently what really clinched the deal was that. Uh, When she concluded her audition, she said, I want to thank you for taking me as an audition uh, against your better judgment. I would like to point out that the character is 75 years old, and I am also 75 years old. And I would like you to notice that she is supposed to be wearing a wig throughout And at this point, Hermione Gingold, with apparently incredible style, pulls off her wig. With great aplomb, I'm sure. With great aplomb and just walks off stage in character. And she apparently had the part before she left the stage. (laughs) um, and, And the concept of the character actually changed. But the specific song of The Glamorous Life is where you see this 
first setup between these two characters of Desiree versus her mother, Madame Armfelt. And you, then you see the younger generation of Frederica. So you have these three generations of women. Um, and, you, you know, the way that Desiree's career is affecting all three of them. What always I, I think about when, you know, the, the reoccurring lyrics of ordinary mothers and, and mm-hmm. the ordinary wives and all the rest. And, and, and it kind of alludes to every single character and their individual crises, which is just, I mean, it's, it's, it's Tolstoy, right? You know, happy families are all the same. Every unhappy family is happy in its own way. And that is so true of each one of these, um, of all these people, the overlapping love triangles, if you will. Yeah, we've got these two and, familial units that we've now presented. And particularly... And what's also funny is that you have Madame Arnfeld certainly was never an ordinary mother. I mean, the grand old, you know, Madame Pompadour, mistress of of kings and royalty and, and, and all the rest. And what an interesting household to have been raised in that must have been. Um, and that now Frederica is being raised in. And of course, what kind of mother can Desiree be when she's on the road all the time? And yet Frederica is this amazingly normal, well-adjusted, stoic child with incredible insight into the follies of um, other grown-ups around her without judging them, too. And it, and it works. I mean, it, it's wisdom above her years, perhaps a little unlikely. But at the same time, she's a perceptive child who's mm-hmm. been exposed to way more than most children at her years have been exposed to. If she grew up on the road first, and then she's receiving quite an interesting education from oh, her grandfather, yes. um, <laughs> you know, you would not expect normal childhood behavior. She's never had a childhood with children. She doesn't know how to behave like a child. She's... She interacts like an adult and she thinks logically through things and she's had to step up and learn how to live in that world. And I think she's a little bit sad. She recognizes that there's something that's been lost, but at the same time, wow, this is the cool, I get to live in a world of grownups. And it is of course, Madame Arnfeld who, who sets up the entire thing in the very beginning, uh, first scene of the show and, and telling Frederica the story of how the, um, uh, the, the, the night will smile three times first on the, on the young who know nothing, the fools who knows very little. And finally the old who know too much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of things that's very interesting. Uh, the advice, the stories, the things that, that Madame Armfeld is telling her granddaughter, um, and also her, her granddaughter's ability to, to, to process all this information and ultimately conclude that it's worth it. Um, it it's, that is, to me, is one of the really neat things that, that Sondheim and Wheeler do, is put her in that position. Um, in the movie, it's, um, it's a servant friend who tells us the legend, but he, he's pulling it back. And it's, he's giving it's her that, that central... Yeah, it's something that you discover as we go through the course of the film. We have to little by little kind of ease mm-hmm. tease out these details and come to a final conclusion. Whereas the in it's almost like it's almost presented like a fable. Mm-hmm. Here's the you know we'll see the three smiles of the summer night. Here's what they are, 
And then you kind of sit back and you watch and you know, we're going to see these, but you don't know how or where or how this is going to come to, but it gives you something to watch for. It's a different way of presenting it. Very interesting. And yeah. also, I uh, like the choice, you know, and, and then, so and both the, are good. And then of course the, the whole idea is, it's not just the glamorous life of, of life on the road. It's, it's this whole upper crust Stockholm society that these people are living in. Frederick, who who works way too much, Madame Armfeld and her her mansion built from <laughs> keeping secrets, basically <laughs> from her previous lovers. Uh, all of it is, and then and then really the the quiet tragedy, um, which I know we'll get into uh, of Count. Um, uh, Carl Malcolm, uh, Carl Magnus Malcolm, and his wife Charlotte, um, and their and the insanity of 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 his CAD life. Very glamorous. I mean, he is a count. He's nobility. He's a dragon. All of that. Um, but again, like I say, all of this is 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 the veneer of glamour, and then the chaos that's simmering underneath each of these different lives. Yeah, and that's a that's a beautiful point, and. Uh... And and it it it's an interesting counterbalance to the next really lovely song that we have on the CD, which is uh, singing I'm "Remember," uh, which is uh, their song about illicit affairs, and it's meant to kind of connect the sweet memories that both Desiree and Frederick have. And it ends with, you know, all of these individual pairs uh, splitting off and then pairing off into other configurations with only four singers. They still manage to do this. And uh, there are actually five, which makes it more interesting because it's always an uneven pair. Oh, that's right. That's right. I forgot. I'm sorry. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. so, so they have these five people and at the end like the upshot of it is you know they're describing all of these you know salacious details that they remember and then at the very end they say oh i'm sure it was you (laughs) and i love this song this is actually one of my favorite songs uh from the first act uh, okay, I realize that's not much of a qualifier, but um, I am a Sondheim nerd, so I get a pass for saying things like that. But um, I, uh, I I wonder how you guys feel about this one as sort of a scene change. I know I know this is one of those songs that sort of gets interspersed, possibly as an excuse for them to change the scenery in the background. Um, but. Oh, well, but I think we need some sort of, we've had the Desiree moment. Okay, Desiree. So we know Desiree's someone. Okay, we just met Desiree, but what's the connection? Mm-hmm. So this A fills in that question. Okay, there's mm-hmm. clearly some sort of, you know, we don't explicitly say this is Desiree and Frederick, but we kind of are wondering, mm-hmm. if, if not, sure, um, that we create that connection there. But I love it's... Um, well, I mean, I think they're referred to even as the Liebeslieder singers. Yeah, the Liebeslieder. That reference to the Brahms Liebeslieder waltzes, which are are just and this they it's written so much in that style. It really takes you back to that and that um, the reminiscence because the waltz era by this time is past. the The peak of the waltz era is past. So um, we've got kind of listening back to this older style and. Um, I love that style for creating that reminiscent feel. It just creates this very 
um, this very foggy, mysterious world of, of memories. And I love the way that he does it musically in this. And then the lyrics, of course, are so witty. But, you know, these individual lines and then the way the harmonies build when the whole chorus comes in together for these cadences. It's just lovely. It's really cool. It is. And then, of course, uh, again, connecting Desiree and Frederick, you get into the next track, which is You Must Meet My Wife, which, (laughs) okay, I'm going to be very honest here. This is my most skipped track uh, from... (laughs) Uh, my youth, especially, uh, because... Oh, I love the cattiness of Oh, it. I love the cattiness in the second half of the song, but yes. it's getting through Len Cario singing, you know, this monologue without being able to see Desiree's facial reactions for like a full two minutes or so yeah. that drives me crazy. Because if I could see her facial reactions on stage, it it would sell it. And it would mm. be fine. Um, but when you're listening, it's. Because yeah. he's so just, he's so deluded. It's so, oh so my weird. God, get over it already. Yeah. So this is where uh, Frederick is telling Desiree all about his young wife, Anne. Um, and, and I really feel like uh, where this track is strongest is where it has the back and forth. Um, where it becomes a true duet. It's very well written and very sharply delivered. And uh, Glynis Johns is just, you know, her, her comic timing. uh, (laughs) I mean, even though it's, it's obviously written into the musical score. Brilliantly written. It's brilliantly performed. Yeah. It's, it's, this is, this is hilarious because he, here we have Frederick trying to pull off something like Carl Magnus is doing that if he could have his delicate wife and eventually wait for whatever time that she's going to finally give her virginity to him, but in the meantime, have Desiree, you know, and, and be able to split himself and just tell her that, you know, this is basically what what he's expressing is 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 I love her, but I want you, but I love her. You must meet her. You guys would be friends. I mean, it's it, 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 complete fantasy world, and she's already working out in her mind through these lyrics of, you know, if I must meet your wife, no, I must meet your wife. It's like her next strategy, mm-hmm. but through that, she's working through the point of. Yeah, if I ever meet your wife, I'm going to slap the little tart in her right in her face, you know. But no, I'm going to get over that now. I've had my moment, <laughs> and it's she has already moved four phases past into the future, and Frederick just continues to be this lovelorn little romantic soppy. And he's starting to see the cracks in the paint. He's starting to go. I can't talk to her. She's a child. So what does he re- He immediately reaches out for someone he can actually talk to and have a real conversation about. But then he feels like he needs to justify, well, why am I, I, uh, why am I with someone else and not with you? Well, because she's just so lovely and charming and perfect and 
you should meet her. Maybe I can have my cake and eat it too. Right. Mm -hmm. Obviously. Yeah. The right thing to do as a man from this century. In in the movie, when he tells Desiree that she's the only true friend that he has, is the only person that he can bear himself completely to. Um, And that comes through in, in the song as well, because why on earth is he you know, saying to her, you must meet her. It's just like, really? No, see, see, you've got to meet her. Did I make the right decision? I made the right decision, right? You know, it's like, once you once you see her, you'll know, you'll understand, you'll get it. I'm not just a lech, you know, here. It's just like, there's there's more to it than that. <laughs> and there really isn't. Nope, not really. <laughs> and, th- and then speaking of lechery, we get into uh, Madame Armfeld's gorgeous song, Liaisons. Oh. Uh, which I just adore, uh, which is Hermione Gingold's big showpiece uh, as Madame Armfeld complains about the sad little affairs people have now compared to her elegant tete-a-tetes with nobility when she was younger. And yes, again, this makes you really wonder about Desiree's upbringing and all of the expectations she placed upon Desiree. as a child, like if she was like literally raised to be a courtesan or something. Well, and we're seeing again, that societal change. I made the comment about we're past the waltz era. We're past that. Those, you know, um, we're, you know, we're past Biedermeier and the rise of, we've had the rise of this upper middle class, but we're also now we're starting to see the descent of the nobility and of the, the rulers and of, the aristocracy. And, you know, is it even realistic for her to think that Desiree could have the same kind of lifestyle that she had had, Mm -hmm. should she have tried? Mm -hmm. I mean, it might be a little bit ridiculous and just looking at, yeah, you're, you're stuck in the past. That's now admittedly, you know, being an actress is less glamorous than being, you know, but it's in a lot of ways, it's the next generation version of what's the (laughs) What's the courtesan? You're feted and, and, but at the same time, you are someone of ill repute, someone of lesser mm-hmm. than, you know, you're going to have lots of male visitors and you're really not going to see any females. She was never a princess. She was never herself royalty. She was just an incredibly good professional mistress. And, and then her daughter could be the, best actress in the world but she's just an actress she's built and, a career and her stars yeah. is is fading and it's going to be more productions and smaller and smaller theaters we see what's coming in her future um and and unfortunately from a practical point of view um snagging frederick is her last chance to have any kind of respectability as well as Stability. Stability. I mean, yeah, certainly I'm sure that once, once her mother passes on, she'll get something there, but it's just, but, but that you don't know all the arrangements that went into exactly how Madame Armfeld has what she has. And Desiree has definitely chosen something different and what the repercussions of that might be for, for her future. We don't know. We just get the idea. It's kind of like Frederick is not only the, He's the he's he's the love she's pining for all the rest from a very real and practical point of view um, might be her best shot um, for 
not being destitute, not being, you know, a, a much of just a steadily declining situation than she's starting to find herself in. She doesn't, she doesn't play it for all it's worth like her mother did. I think she enjoys her independence. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why she has a mm. career and she tours and she does all these things instead of, I don't know what the, well, what would the other options be? I don't know. Um, but I think, yeah, the irony is then that the only way she can finally gain independence and stability in a certain way is then to tie herself back to a man. Mm. Yeah. And this is for me, it's the biggest departure from, from the film is how Prince said um, that um, Bergman loved it, absolutely loved the show, but was very clear. That's your show. It's not my movie. It's great for what it is. Desiree is so different in the in the musical because she is in the film. First of all, the child is a boy, mm-hmm. and he's five. So this affair is 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 not that long ago. Um, relative past. She is incredibly astute, self possessed, a modern woman. The child is with her. It's not with the grandmother. She is raising her child. She is still at the height of her, uh, of, of her powers. She's supremely confident. She can do almost anything. And, um, and, sh- and she is really the one pulling the strings throughout the entire thing. Um, Sondheim flips that on its head, makes her into a much, you know, she's still, scheming and she's trying she's doing a lot of things she's trying her damnedest um but she is more much much more vulnerable uh and that just helps flesh out the characters so much more uh it's not that she's hollow or two-dimensional in the film uh, it's, it's just we see so much more of her in the music i almost feel like she's the the commedia dell'arte she's the you mm-hmm. know like our despina our ina etta rules and the you know that the woman who's She's young and she's sweet and charming, even though Desiree's not quite as young as she was. She knows she's still got it. Mm-hmm. And she pulls the strings and she manipulates and control and, and just corrals everybody into their positions. That she is totally in control of this situation. Yeah. And she's playing all the men around her. And in in the musical, we see so much more of the doubt and the uh-huh. am I coming to the she can see the end of her career coming. She's starting to get a little bit desperate. You know, and if her daughter is what fourteen, mm-hmm. you know, it's been a that affair has been a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, and 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 I know this is leading into our next song in the film. She doesn't sleep with Frederick. Uh, not initially. No. It's, it's it's they're interrupted. Yeah, we they're, don't know they're interrupted, but there is no need in this. What are friends for? What are old friends for? In the musical, they do. And it's, I don't think it's meant to be a sign of weakness or anything. It's just he's having fun with the story. It's interesting because then Carl uh, Magnus, his figuring, what he's seeing, how he sees Desiree, and did they or didn't they, much more similar to the film Desiree. No, no, she didn't. She's in, you know, and I guess it's a good time to start talking about yeah, the next yeah. one. So <laughs> let's talk about In Praise of Women. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to like father trying to explain the whole like context of the beginning of in praise of women because it's your typical farcical did i see what i thought i saw trying to explain the lies etc etc going on in the background um but it's mostly just carl magnus being a colossally horrible human being (laughs) yes um 
However, I have to say, Lawrence Guitard, his vocal performance in this song just takes my breath away every time. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, Carl Magnus is back. Our eldest son is named Carl, and we thought very hard. We're like, Carl Magnus is a great name, but we can never name him that because of Carl Magnus. (laughs) (laughs) He's so delightfully wooden. I, I mean, I'm so glad that no one has Carl, ever Carl felt, Magnus. Yeah, is that, so delightful. Yeah. <laughs> Not your child. <laughs> just there's no subtext. There's no complications. It's just he is what he is. He's an archetype, and he's, he's just that's so perfect. Because let's have let, let's have complexity elsewhere in it. But when we need someone to just be. He's a, a set piece. He comes in and he's an un- immovable object in the way. A comedic Falstaffian, just like, um, and, 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 and we don't have to like him or feel sorry for him. We will laugh at him and hate him and he's going to get what he gets. And it's just perfect. <laughs> I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, do you, do you, do you see, uh, you know, as it goes in, like there's this other, there's another side of Carl Magnus. Oh, that, no. Oh, no. Just, Absolutely oh. nowhere. And, like, if you read through <laughs> all of the lyrics, like, it's quite lovely when you read through um, all of the lyrics in the actual score, uh, not even necessarily the ones that are available to you on the internet. Um, because when I was in the show, I was realizing that Carl Magnus has all these wonderful lines that you can't even hear. Um, Probably in the weekend in the country. Yeah, in a weekend in the country in particular, like he's got this set of lyrics about, you know, uh, pack my gun, pack my boots, pack everything I own that shoots. (laughs) And like that just to me typifies who he is. Yes. He's he's the ultimate male aggressor who is completely unapologetic about who he is and will not change and has no interest really in the thoughts or feelings of anyone else around him. This song in praise of women, where he's basically just calling women, you know, women are wonderful toys for me. Yeah. Women are wonderful toys. This originally was going to be a different song uh, that Sondheim Uh wrote called bang, where he was going to come on uh, and compare making love to making war. And uh, say the word bang and unbutton his coat once uh, every time he said that word. And nobody apparently has a military coat with enough buttons to uh, actually make that work on stage. Creative with the striptease there. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. Uh, So (laughs) this is actually technically another one of those scenes that was inserted to allow for a set change um, to get into Charlotte's parlor. Um, wow. So that you can see what's going on in her head. So we can have a single character in front of the curtain while the rest changes. Mm-hmm. So uh, when he says that line, and Charlotte, my devoted wife, is when her set comes around. And uh, obviously, Carl Magnus's general egotism leads straight into our next song every day a little death oh i mean this is just the this is the the saddest just most emotional 
Hey, Sin of the Clowns is sad. Ah, not compared to this song. This is no, not at it. all. I mean, that this is just, and and as we know, um, it's, it's not going to get better. This is. It's an she knows. She knows what she has. She knows that she's married to an ass, and that mm-hmm. she loves him, and that is horrible. And that she shouldn't. It would be so much easier if she couldn't, um, if she could get over it. And she will just be, her lot is to be tormented by him again and again. And again, and to basically now come to Anne and say, so your husband and Desiree, let me confirm your suspicions after you heard him say her name in bed, not that you guys are technically sleeping together, but now you have my life. Now you know what it's like to be welcome to the suffering. Yeah, to the mm-hmm. to the suffering, and um, and and of course for Anne, it's her her love for Frederick, and I mean, it is absolutely different, complete the situation than than what Charlotte has. But you know, for an instant, it's it's like. These, these women who have been friends for a very long time, um, it's showing, you know, Anne, you're, you're, you're still a virgin. And even despite that, this is how your husband is using sex against you. Mm-hmm. And isn't this great? <laughs> isn't it great to be a woman in yeah. the world? No. I mean, that's the way I always read this song is a very feminist statement. Mm-hmm. And I always took it as such. And I I yeah. really have always responded to this song on those terms, even aside from the context of the show. But it's the women have no agency. There's nothing yeah. they can do. The men can do whatever they want and you just have to live with it. And it's and I I love the way the lyrics progress. I mean, they're just oh God, they're heart wrenching lyrics mm-hmm. and just, you know, yeah. but it's the only way that you can survive this is by being numb. Just die a little more and a little mm-hmm. more every day until you just can't feel the pain. And, and, and we've seen a glimpse of what could be different because we've we've got Petra and she's obviously having a fun time and has been for a little while. And, you know, she's not bound by maybe all the rules and structures that the upper class is having. And And she's kind of throwing that into Anne's face and all the time of just like, sex is fun. I'm having a great time. And then we cut to Charlotte and it's like, here's what being married is really all about. Well, and Charlotte but she did... hasn't married the Miller's son yet. So she, doesn't no, she know. hasn't, We've got to go there. <laughs> but, but and right now she... she's in full Despina mode. And Charlotte did probably, you know, what, what Madam Armfeld would, re- would view as closer to the right thing in the, you know, she married the right man, you know, mm-hmm. she married the count and she's, she's acquired the property and all the things that she needs. And, you know, perhaps now if she wanted to discreetly take a lover, you know, but mm-hmm. just that she, yeah, she married, right. And yet it's taken her to the worst place she could imagine. Uh, we have this gorgeous duet um, that leads into uh, the provocation of Desiree uh, taking Frederick up on you must meet my wife, uh, inviting Anne and Frederick to the country. And we get this delightful mini operetta that closes out Act One. 
Um, it's like the finale to a Mozart opera. It is. And Sondheim has actually said this was actually written in a frenzy of uh, work while uh, everything was in rehearsal. It wasn't written before the rehearsals started. Hal Prince asked him to write kind of a mini operetta to sum up what was going on at the time. And Sondheim was very upset about it, and but went to work. And after this show, he actually does the same thing in a lot of his subsequent shows. Like, he actually decided that he really liked the structure. And so he does the same thing in Sweeney Todd, where you've got God That's Good. He does it in Pacific Overtures with Chrysanthemum Tea. Um, and I think a couple of other places, too. But... Uh, you have the invitation that Desiree has sent and all of the ramifications of that invitation and a check-in with every single character and their plots and their plans. And I love a weekend in the country. I hated performing it. It was the hardest thing to perform I think I've ever had to sing in my life. Uh, particularly the lyric, twice as upset as in, twice as upset as in, twice as upset. I could never say it <laughs> quickly enough, uh, clearly enough for our musical director. <laughs> Sorry, Gary. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, I absolutely love this. There are some parts that are in unison. There are some parts that are, you know, each individual piece singing over each other, you miss a lot of the cleverness that is there in the lyrics because it's so much, so fast coming at you. Though um, he doesn't pile up big layers of harmony in the part to cover it more. He does try to leave some room for it to cut through, but it's so hard when you've got that many layers. Yeah. Because he could have big stacked chords every time that we have the chorus come in together and then you've got these little lines jumping out. And he doesn't. He keeps it all unison. Almost every iteration of a weekend is everyone all together in perfect unison. But, yeah. Yeah. But then those, some of those little <laughs> interjections like you, get lost. You said you, you miss all of Lauren's guitar's beautiful lyrics. Just, next thing you know, it's one of his high notes. And then you're like, oh, it's good. Okay. And then that's just cycling again and again and this gyration of the 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 the, the frenzy of everything and so the curtain comes back up again on the sun won't set and i <laughs> love this on tract i mean I, I love all of the versions of the night waltz so completely yeah. Uh, my husband had to endure hearing me singing them over the last several nights, um, <laughs> kind of incessantly. But uh, the sun is low, as low as it's going to go. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, yeah. And the lyrics are just so rich in it, and just mm -hmm. the descriptive language he uses, and the you know, and 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 yeah, it's the oh look, it stopped. Oh, it's stopping, and oh, okay. Sorry, my Sorry, mistake. My mistake. It's stopping. <laughs> Look, it's dipping. Now it's dropping. I can't remember all Eight that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nine o'clock twilight. Yeah, yes, I love that. Twilight. Twilight. <laughs> I know. I think that was what my husband objected to most. My occasionally interjecting twilight. <laughs> <laughs> 
she's a bass. Uh. Yeah, it's just, it's so musically rich as well as lyrically rich as a world. And then the next track that we get is It Would Have Been Wonderful. Mm. And I love this song um, because it, it's like a verbal duel as yes. well as, you know. And can it? there's so much potential for staging and how you do it with the two men. And yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we have this duet between Carl Magnus and Frederick and they're sort of taking it's It's like they're taking their paces and the upshot is it's all Desiree's fault. And they're so egotistical, both of them. They they're really both, are. Why am I stuck here with him? Why didn't she just pick me right off the bat? Well, what you're both married, first of all. Mm-hmm. And. What, what what are we even doing? But even though Desiree, one of you wasn't invited, the other yeah, one of you is Desiree didn't want his beautiful him there. Young wife, and yet you're, but you know, oh, but it's it would like, just be perfect without him. Wait, you're ignoring all the other obstacles. Yeah, and you almost wonder maybe maybe they'll manage to to just both like to kill each other. And I feel like that would be a much more satisfying conclusion to this song. This 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 is the Russian roulette. Um, you know, type lyrics of what they're doing here. It, it yeah, is, that's right. That's right. And, it, and they have to have this. And it's not like the, the better man is going to win because the decision, as we find out, is made for Frederick. Uh, but it's like, because there's not really a a better man who, who is more worthy to win her because it's, you know, she's, she's not property. Right. Uh, she's they just an object. Think of her that way. But, yeah. you know, ultimately it's just they're their ridiculousness and but but they have to have this point we have to have the tension because it's like yeah frederick doesn't just get to he shouldn't deserve to just try his chance to desiree without without malcolm being there Mm -hmm. um he has to get through all of that first and of course malcolm has his own journey to make It, it is a duel this is a struggle the but they're but they're doing so in a civil, civilly uncivil way. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that they, it, we start out with this, the, the very uncertain with those wind passages with, with that boom. Boom. Almost like they're stepping, they're taking their paces, but then we've got this. It almost feels like nervous laughter or something yeah. like, oh God, what's going to happen next? And then we come into the chorus where they both finally, they're, she's so wonderful. And then they remember the other guys there. <laughs> mm-hmm. the music swells. And then we're back to, oh God, when are they going to start shooting? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I I love that. And then of course, you know, the, the idea of the Russian roulette going into perpetual anticipation in the next track is, you know, yes. magical. <laughs> There was an argument between Sondheim and Hal Prince over the way that song should end. Mm-hmm. Um, perpetual anticipation is good for the soul, but it's bad for the heart is what got put in the show. But what Sondheim actually wanted is perpetual anticipation is good for the heart, but it's bad for the skin. <laughs> Interesting. Because I think he wanted to kind of highlight the sort of... The aging? Well, both the the youth versus aging culture, as well as the, you know, narcissism of kind of 
society at mm-hmm. this time. Um, I don't know. It's it's an interesting idea. I thought you guys might find that interesting. <laughs> but then I like the 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 switching to the is good for the soul, but it's bad for the heart. It feels like a a, a Henrik moment. It does. Sexual anticipation is good for the soul. You should have to wait. You you impatient or wait, but he then he runs off. So you know. yeah. So whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Forget impatience. I'm taking her. She's mine. Sorry, Dad. Bye. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Nice wife. Mine. Let's not mention this to your uh, Lutheran pietist friends, there, uh, Henrik. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, I get the sense that he's very much not going back there. Uh, so then we get to our very next song, the most famous song, "Send in the Clowns." A lot of people take the title of this song way too effing literally, and it drives me insane, okay? I've been in Broadway review shows where directors insisted on physically putting clowns on stage while people were singing this song. Oh, my goodness. And I actually walked out. <laughs> um, and you've got a lot of theatrical references about uh, covering things up, Um yeah, like I had heard that maybe when with vaudeville shows, when something starts mm-hmm. to tank, you send in the you button. send in the clowns exactly. <laughs> this song is nothing without the context of the musical, and if you are not paying attention to what the song is actually about, and you're trying to divorce it completely from context, um, it's it's a little strange in my opinion. Frank Sinatra singing "Send in the Clowns." is like did did Billy cover this too? I mean everybody has freaking done it at yeah. some point. Um including our, our own beloved Glenn Close and frankly I think hers is one of the strongest covers ever. But uh you're right. It just never makes sense outside of of this at all. And it's just and it's not this big lush thing. It's it's the song written for the the kind of it's like you the know, 11th I, hour of singing, but not singing for Gwyneth Johns to, to act this, to express, you know, here, I'm ready. Look at us. Here we are. I'm ready to go. You're, you're off in just la la land. You know, as you say, you look at me and, and you want to be, and you can think about our life, but then you think of, of Anne and, and you just, you know, you're back to that world. It's like everything that I've been trying to set up this entire weekend, all those discussions, everything else I come, I'm giving myself to you and really bearing myself. And you're just, you were almost there and saying, ah, <laughs> sorry, I'm no further than I was when we had our discussion that night after the play. And, you know, it's so incredibly anticlimactic. We've gotten to this. They should finally be. No, and no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's what's really interesting to me is that um but Sondheim it's really deliberately wrote this song to be specific to Glynis John's range. Mm-hmm. Um it was not written to be a spectacular showstopper of a song. It yeah. was written to be very much a performance song where she could show off her dynamic acting style. Um, and and really draw the audience in. 
Um, Sondheim himself has said he's completely stymied by the fact that this song had so much success. Uh, Apparently it took off after Judy Collins uh, made a recording of it uh, into a hit in the UK and then Sinatra in the US. And the song eventually actually won a Grammy, uh, which, again, that's a little incongruous. But it's written all in the speaking range of the voice. So, I mean, that's what gives you... It's what let Glenn Johns be able to do it. It doesn't, it never goes high. That's true. Um, and it, and it's a, per, but it, because of that, it's a perfect vehicle for the acting. Um, but yeah, it's, it's also though, if you think about it, this is when women and pop music were coming back in and everything was this semi-spoken poetic style. And so mm. it really in a funny way suited that style and that style of singers. Now, I agree with you. I don't think it makes much of any... There's just no way you can divorce it from the show and make it make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, it's so, so, so specific. I mean, yeah. I get excited by by the clarinet intro because it's just so beautiful. It's just such... Oh, my God. The, the wind so- instruments throughout this musical, but oh. especially that clarinet. There's no oh. rhythm section. It's just strings and, 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 and it's woodwinds and and so much earlier were, this, were, the, were the lush strings of, of our... Um, of our waltz here, we just do this quiet single clarinet calling out to introduce this beautiful. That to me is the exciting portion of it. But I think everybody who knows and loves this musical, even as many times as we're here, we're always surprised. Oh, that's right, Sun and the Clowns. That's that's in this too. Like it's not the thing. Like oh, we're all waiting for like until we get to Sun and the Clowns. Oh, here we go. It's, oh, that's nice. That's in, but but we know it's so much more for for everything else and and all of the other numbers uh, and not just this one. And it is a mystery. Yeah, it, it became so big. Yeah, not that it's a bad song. No, it's, song. No, it's not. It's a wonderful <laughs> song, and it's melodically a very interesting structure. It's lyrically uh, embedded with uh, so many references to Desiree's career as a theatrical artist, and it's got the a lot of parts. He the, the mm-hmm. counterpoint lines and everything. He just it's lovely. It's really. Lovely. But if you would, if I would have looked down and said, "What would be the what would be the the single song that would that would carry through? That would be the single, the real big hit, or just really lose me?" It's actually the next one. Um, that I the Miller's yeah, that I particularly just adore. It's so great. Yeah, <clears throat> and it's I I find it just so incredible, um, as a song. But I, again, you know, it it's it's woven its way through pop culture. Uh, I mentioned The Simpsons at the beginning of this podcast, and it does make its way into The Simpsons uh, fourth season show where Krusty gets canceled. And uh, well, which is perfect. That's a good setting for it. It is actually. It is the actual apropos setting for it. So yes, that works. Um, so. It's interesting, though, to go when you're listening on the album to go from sending the clowns to the Miller's son. Yes, it's a jolt. It is. But I I adore the Miller's son. 
Yes. As a song, because it, it's this song of kind of sexual freedom sung by Petra, the young maid who's been teasing Henrik all along. And it's, you know, it's supposed to be kind of, she thinks it's singing about how she has uh, all these options and all, you know, I'll, I'll definitely have lived when I die. I'll, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll experience everything passing by. But at the same time, she's also mapping out a strategy for how she's going to sleep her way to the top. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I love this as kind of a joyful rendering of, uh, again, like the limited role that women have in society at this time, and especially uh, in counterpoint to everyday a little death, which is sort of about the limited options for women of nobility or of a certain class, whereas Petra, who is of the lower classes, feels like, you know, she can... Sky is the limit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's also this idea of... I have to live now before this comes Mm because I will marry. And Mm -hmm. yeah, maybe I'll marry them more or maybe I'll, maybe I'll work my way up a little higher, but you know, it's harder to sleep around and have all this fun once you have all these other responsibilities. But then there's also a, but maybe fun can lead me, take me someplace Mm -hmm. and I can get something out of it's it. She's almost the, the blend of Desiree and her mother. Yeah. The, I want to have fun, but I expect But I want to be practical about it, yeah. but I'm going to have fun doing it. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be my own woman and I'm going to be in control. Oh, I, I think there's around. even a direct, you know, or maybe, uh, maybe or I'll marry the, the Prince version. of Wales. I mean, okay, quick line about, or I shall marry the Prince of Wales. <laughs> uh, true story. I actually saw this show in 1995 with uh, the cast with Judy Dench. Uh, ah. in London. And uh, when <laughs> you have to remember what was going on in 1995, this was <laughs> right when the media was seizing on to Charles's affair with Camilla Parker Bowles. And my father turned to me and said, they have to have interpolated that line when she sings, I shall marry the Prince of Wales. He could not believe that that was in the original 1970s script. And I was like, damn, it was. It totally was. I'm sorry. But it got a big laugh out of that audience. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Very timely. Very timely. No, it's... um... And that's so funny because this is one of those areas that they that they, they choose to be ambiguous on. Um, that's a big departure because it, it is Petra and Frid walking off together. And after the sun having smiled, you know, for the last time, it's the conclusion, it's the morning, we're going off into our thing and we just had our fun in the hay, but we're, we're, we're going to go make our garden grow. Sorry. I just had to steal that from another show. Uh, <laughs> it's always a good old terror reference. And, and, and it ends the end and all the rest. And you're like, well, so what's Petra going to do next? I'm kind of curious. You know, well, and that's why I love that Sondheim takes it in this other direction. Sondheim mm-hmm. doesn't end it with Frid. Sondheim, mm-hmm. you know, we, she clearly had fun with Frid, but 
she's thinking, she's planning and she's got some ideas and, but whatever you get the feeling that whatever way she goes, she's going to make it a good ride. So we go from, um, that to the finale, uh, the send in the clowns reprise where it's a duet between Desiree and Frederick. And we actually get the line that sort of goes back to the overture. Me is a merry-go-round. And then Frederick yeah. says, me as King Lear. And those yes. are the very last lyrics we get for the whole show. Yeah. And uh, I I really love that as a conclusion to this story. Well, and I found it interesting, though, that we go with King Lear. I love I it, but at the same time, it's... I mean, I guess it's for the love of the daughter, because, <laughs> I mean, effectively, she is more of his daughter than his. But it's an interesting, the, the madness and the, because, you you know, I don't know what a good parallel would be for. I, I don't think it's so much the daughter necessarily as it is the fact that he's choosing between all these women. He's got Charlotte mm-hmm. and Desiree and. Uh, Having Anne. to pick a favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's so funny that, that, yes, we would end this by referencing a great Shakespearean tragedy when we've been the whole time kind of moving in in loose parallel to great Shakespearean comedy among many, many, so many other inspirations, you know. So I, I, I love that because it's it's like, sometimes it's not so subtle. It's like, yes, I, I know what you were thinking. (laughs) <laughs> it was it occurred to me too i mean look i chose all these things i gave you kind of the nod to mozart we're doing all but there's also the the, the nod to shakespeare and the, everything else you know um it's just kind of like the man who launched a thousand college literary and cultural study essays <laughs> <laughs> steven sondheim <laughs> exactly exactly and the last smile uh, when it smiles on the old, so is the old um, you know, truly the Madame, and and she's seen it all, and she's smiling is the smile of death. Are I, we talking here about Frederick and I think Desiree, or Frederick and Desiree the fools? I think Frederick and Desiree. I think this is almost the transition of them from the fools to the old. Mm-hmm. It's the letting go of Frederick, letting go of his grasping at youth and realizing mm-hmm. that finally being forced kicking and screaming against his own will, will to admit that where he belongs is here with her and that this may the thrill of the chase and all that other stuff is done but this is yeah and it's for her if you remember earlier in the score we have lines about what if what if mother was had a husband and was only acting when she wanted to. She's letting go of her career. She's letting go of her philandering and her parties and her fun. And finally setting, they're both finally letting go of those illusions, those dreams, those things of the young life and saying, okay, we're, we're settling down. We're really letting all of that go. They're finally starting to maybe feel a thread of wisdom in there like it or not so last minute thoughts general impressions it's like the princess bride you can watch it 400 times it never gets old just and there is something i think you you always see 
something new that's that's always in it um and then after every performance you have to deal with this this music is going to be completely in your head and dominating everything that you're doing and you're going to start talking to your spouse as you are singing to like night waltz and they just have to deal with it because uh or until you can spread it to somebody else and um it's a virus right or you just turn on into the woods or Sweeney and, and, and replace one with another. <laughs> with <Yeah>. another. <laughs> it's just, I, I love works that you, you walk away with. There's this, there's the beauty of a great tragedy in it. Mm-hmm. Like of the, the, we look at the flaws, especially in Frederick and Desiree and just, and the things that have held them apart for 15 years and the pride and just all of these silly things. And it takes all the, but then that everything finally, after so much madness, ends up right. And that things are where they're supposed to be. There's a really great catharsis for me about that. And then you just add just this beautiful music to take you out of it. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it just is a great show to go to great show to listen to. Um, yeah, it and it leaves you thinking about it and mulling over it, but in that wonderful way for days. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm glad that you were able to give so much backstory to, um, to the synthesis of the collaboration between Sondheim and Prince on this, because, you know, my opinion is his, is Sondheim's best worker, the shows they did together. Mm. Um, and this, then this is the, the absolute height of it. Um, I mean, both of them are at the complete top of their game and there is a push pull. There's a, there's a tension here. Um, you know, uh, and I, and I think that what we got was, was an absolutely superb result. And, and this cast is just, and Len carry you will always oh be, will always be Frederick. There is no one else who can ever hold a candle who I could ever just see in this. Um, his, his expression, his, 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 his tenderness, the way that he sings and tells her when I look into your eyes and I see what could be, and I'm transformed. But then I think of that young when girl, my eyes are when, not my, open. when my eyes are not open, I love that line. That's not when my eyes are closed. When, when my eyes are my not eyes are open. not open, and it's just God. Yeah, he's he's so wonderful. This is and I, and and that comes from seeing so many other casts do it. Seeing the movie, yeah, um, yeah. And, 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 and if you look at the movie of A Little Night Music, starring Elizabeth yes. Taylor with Len Carrier, oh my gosh, Hal yeah. Prince trying to direct a movie. When he's clearly a much better stage director, um, Sondheim actually writes in finishing the hat that his heart was not in it at all, and yeah. um, he didn't have a sense of exactly why the material wouldn't work as written, even though Sondheim kept trying to dissuade him from doing it. Yeah, um, and uh, I mean, it really is a shame that the touches uh, and perception are so different mm-hmm. when you put it on film. It really is. I mean, Lawrence Guitar was still so great. Diana Rigg, my God, as oh, Charlotte. You couldn't you couldn't have a better person for Charlotte than oh. Diana Rigg. Oh. But 
Well, and I love that, you know, because um, Henrik and Anne, you know, Mark Lambert and Victoria Mallory ended up together. Mm-hmm. And their daughter was then the Anne for the 2009-10 production, the, the revival. Just like, wow, well, that, huh. Quite Back a pedigree the- there. Yeah. Yeah. But Leslie Ann Downs' Anne was, was, um, was too sexually aware and it wasn't. Yeah. Well, that's one of the challenges with, because I don't know if you know, but I originally auditioned and was called back for Anne before I ended up in the orchestra. I, I auditioned and was called back for Madame Armfeld before I ended up in the <laughs> chorus. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, um, but Anne is, is challenging to play because you don't, she's not Carl Magnus. She's not an archetype. No. But he is the she well in some ways she is she is the young who know nothing mm-hmm. she really knows nothing but it's really hard to play her without playing her just as stupid because <sighs> she's just incredibly naive incredibly sheltered she's trying to make her best you know she talks about marrying frederick she saw that she he was so sad and she wanted to make him feel better and she she is so ridiculously naive and it's just um, but it's it's hard to find that that sweetness and that silliness and that child likeness mm-hmm. without just focusing on the childishness because there is something that Frederick saw there that's genuinely sweet and kind and good. Mm-hmm. But it's just so easy to play her dumb and ditzy. It's mm-hmm. true. It's true. And I've seen a lot of productions that do just that. Yeah, because it's the so, easy way out. But it, I, it was interesting to see a production that takes her a little because. There's stuff within the text that you can take her a little further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's still not going to be a genius and she's not going to be, but she's young. She's just mm-hmm. young. And for those who get too hung up on Frederick's, you know, like, you know, get the barely legal girl and all the rest, it's like, well, remember, he is not forcing himself. Um, and and if one watches the movie and and then wants to find this in the musical as well, I mean, it really is his his thing for her is infatuation i mean it, it, the way he treats her i mean there's at one point i mean she just kind of comes onto his lap and and it's just like a child um and not in a creepy way but it's just like there's there's a part of him that's overall a nurturer mm-hmm. and um and in the end it's it's maybe the reason that things haven't gone further is that she she is more like a child to him than than a wife um, so yeah, if, if one wants to see that, maybe it's not all that complicated, but, um, it's, it's something that, that you pick up on, um, I think a lot in the movie, uh, and it just is why he's so confused about this marriage. Well, and it's the, when you marry a saint, but then how do you defile a saint? Yeah. <laughs> it's, there's the, the, often we see this dichotomy, especially in 19th century. That's things. true. What I always wonder is... Between the marriage to uh, Anne, which had been in the last year, and the 14 years since his dalliance with Desiree, what was he doing for companionship? I don't want to know. (laughs) We probably don't want to know. Petra, no, wait, she's not on her own. No, no, no. But that's, and that's one thing where the film leaves the, 
doesn't leave as many holes and as many unanswered questions there with by having the younger child, such a short but by having the older child and the girl child. Yeah, and then and then you really wonder. Yeah. Well, and I love the juicy parallels you get then between grandmother, daughter, and and granddaughter. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah. a really beautiful, you know. It uh, it was making me think almost of I don't I don't know if you were ever a Gilmore, Gilmore Girls watcher. It's where is this daughter gonna go? This granddaughter. She's been raised by these three the these two very strong women who in some ways are very different and in some ways are just repeating the same cycle. And yes, where is she exactly. gonna go now? And so Frederick then is going to maybe finally break the cycle by having a father, by changing the whole dynamic there. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. But it gives, yeah, having that outside perspective. And I love the scenes where you have Frederica and Henrik together. Mm-hmm. And Frederica, who's young and innocent, but incredibly ridiculously insightful, and Henrik, who has been so, so utterly repressed and refuses to allow himself to think about those things or to realize that those things are happening. And so is just totally, they're, they're great for each other and for helping each other. And finally, someone he can talk to. <laughs> yeah. Because it's your sister. <laughs> well, thank you so much, both of you, for sharing this conversation. I love talking Sondheim. And I especially <laughs> love talking it with old friends who love Thanks. him as much as I, I do. <laughs> It's been oh, very and it's fun. the perfect it's the perfect time to to be discussing this show. Dan is right. The height of summer is the perfect time for a little night music, but it's always a good time to celebrate Sondheim. So thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it, and please take the time to rate and review us on iTunes or Podchaser or wherever you listen to us. It really helps us out a lot, and it only takes a minute of your time. Thanks so much for listening. Take care.